In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Dr. Lois Frankel joins us today on Money Tales. Lois is the best-selling author of the inspirational Nice Girls series of books, which include Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office, Nice Girls Don't Get Rich, and Nice Girls Just Don't Get It. She came from a background where nothing was expected of her. Lois shares that her brothers were encouraged to go out and make a lot of money, while she was not encouraged to do much of anything. She says she was a quiet little girl, a nice girl. And Lois defines nice girls as females who act the way people expect them to. They're women who follow the rules, don't speak up, and selflessly just get the job done. As she grew up, Lois realized she wanted so much more for herself. Ultimately, she found her true passion, which led to helping women push beyond these barriers. Lois is president of Corporate Coaching International. She's a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author, executive coach, and an internationally sought-after keynote speaker in the fields of career and leadership development. Although she is proud of her many accomplishments, Lois is most proud of having founded two nonprofit organizations in Los Angeles, Motivating Our Students Through Experience and Bloom Again Foundation. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three Money Tales conversation topics Lois hits on in this conversation. First, when you're looking to do something different, something different comes your way. You have the power to manifest change for yourself. Second, how her father taught her to save, but how he didn't teach her to invest to grow the money she was saving. When we teach others about money, we need to make sure we're providing the full story rather than focusing on a single component. And third, there's a difference between being financially comfortable and being rich, and it's okay to want to be rich. If you like this episode, be sure to share it with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales. Now, onto our conversation with Dr. Lois Frankel. Welcome, Money Tales listeners. This is Cami, and I'm here with my co-host, Sandy. Hey, Cami. In preparation for our conversation today, got on the website for our guest. On there, there was a tip of the day that read, before Sheryl Sandberg told you to lean in, Dr. Lois Frankel told you how to get the corner office. I loved that quote, Sandy. We just got out of our executive committee meeting, and I love looking around the office at Asperian and the leadership and seeing all these women in the corner office. I know it's thrilling. It feels like we're office lists in this <laughs> environment still. The virtual corner office, but C-level. And I'm really proud of the steps we've made as an organization. Your role as chief client officer, I'm proud to be our chief marketing officer, and just so many more. 
it is thrilling as we look up and down our organization and see all that we are doing to promote all the talent of our firm and bring together everyone's unique backgrounds and perspectives. And it is fun to be in the virtual corner office with you, Cami. It's my pleasure to introduce our Money Tales guests. Welcome, Dr. Lois Frankel, to the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me to be with you both. I've been looking forward to it. Would you introduce yourself and provide two or three pivotal moments that really impacted you, influencing who you are today? Sure. And I think they actually have to do with money, too. As most people know, I'm the author of the Nice Girls series of books. Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office. Nice Girls Don't Get Rich. Nice Girls Just Don't Get It. Nice Girls Don't Speak Up or Stand Out. But before I had those books, I had an interesting career. First in business, I worked for Arkell, the oil company and human resources for 10 years. Then I left there to start my own private practice of psychotherapy because my entire life, that's all I really wanted to be was a psychotherapist. And I quit a great job, was making a lot of money. But I thought if I never make another dime that I'm making today, but I'm happy, that's what will be really important to me. I leave my job. I open up my practice. Within a year, I realized I'd made a mistake. And it was the moment I wanted to jump across the couch and put my hands around my client's neck and say, how many times are we going to talk about the same thing? I realized, oh man, I've made a mistake here. As the world works, often when you're looking to do something different, something different came my way. A former colleague said, Lois, would you be willing to coach someone for me? This was in 1988, 1989, and there were no business coaches. So I had no idea what she was asking for. The first pivotal moment was when I left my job. The second pivotal moment was when I realized I'd made a mistake. And really, the third pivotal moment was when this woman came along and asked me to coach someone. And even though I had no idea what a coach did, I knew it had to be better than being a therapist. (laughs) And when I said to her, What would you like me to do? And she said, Well, you know, Lois. You've worked in human resources, you've worked in business, you've done training, you've done psychotherapy, you have a PhD in counseling, you kind of put them all together and you have a coach. I still didn't know what I was supposed to do, but I was willing to give it a try. That really changed my life. And it changed my life financially. It changed my life just in terms of fulfillment. I just became a whole new person because I took that risk. First of all, I took the risk to leave Arco. And then I took the risk to say, you know, I'm not happy doing this after I thought this is what I was supposed to do. And then taking the risk to say, I don't know what a coach does, but I'll give it a try. After that, I built the coaching business and it was one of the first in the country. I realized soon after I started it that I could only make as much money as I could work in a week. And I said, well, that just means you need to have people working for you. I brought in subcontractors to do coaching and then obviously created a business where we provided team-based coaching to corporations around the world. That is who I am. And that was how I did it. Were you, as a young person, motivated by money? Tell us a little bit about the backstory. We started at Arco. Let's talk about, as you were growing up, was money being talked about in your home? What were some of the values being expressed? It was talked about a lot, and it was mostly talked about a lot because we didn't have a lot of it. I'd say I grew up in a lower middle-class home. Neither of my parents had college educations. I had two brothers, one older and one younger. 
we talked about it a lot, but it wasn't really so much about how are you going to make it? It was more about how do we stretch it? My father was notorious for saving. He was kind of a notorious skin flint, but he had his eye on the future and his retirement and he wasn't making a lot of money. He thought you needed to save a lot of money for retirement, but he wasn't making that much. My mother was a nurse and between the two of them, they scraped by. And by the time I was probably in college, they had an absolutely middle-class life where they went on vacations and they had their own home and things like that. But there was never a lot of extra around. One of the things that really stuck with me was this whole notion of I'd better save money. It was never expected that I, the only girl in the family, was probably going to make much money. It was expected that my brothers would. And I remember having a conversation with my younger brother not too long ago when he said, didn't mom ever tell you she wanted you to be a doctor? I said, no. Did she tell you that? Yeah. And then she said, if I can't be a doctor, at least could I be an anesthesiologist? (laughs) The boys were encouraged to go out and make a lot of money. I was not encouraged to do much of anything, to tell you the truth. Were you present to that difference when you were growing up? I don't think that I was aware of the difference. No, because I certainly didn't know what she was saying to my younger brother. We never had that discussion. And my older brother was always a go-getter, always entrepreneurial and doing something to make money. The guy would mow lawns and deliver newspapers and shovel snow. It paid off for him because he did wind up becoming a multimillionaire. So who did you learn most from? I learned the most from starting my own business because everybody thought that I was being frivolous about it. I remember my mother saying when I left Arco, it turns my stomach, the thought of you being unemployed. Now I have two brothers that are self-employed, but they weren't unemployed. My younger brother never did become a doctor, (laughs) but he likes to tell that story. I really wasn't learning money from them. I was really learning it as I went along. When I first figured out about, for example, cash flow, cash flow was something that was really important. But how would I know that? Working for a company in human resources and then having a psychotherapy practice. And then as I grew to scale, that's when I really started learning things. And the best piece of financial advice I got was from a small business advisor who said, you pay in advance for capacity. When I heard that, it suddenly made a lot of sense so that I started putting money into my business when I could least afford it. But that was really how you're going to be able to scale. I feel as if my money education, to some extent, came from my father watching him save and understanding the importance of saving. But I didn't really learn about investing from him. I learned about saving. From my mother, I learned about smart spending because we didn't have a lot. She would really know where to get all the bargains, which I still do. And somebody said to me just the other day, you mean you shop at Marshall's? I said, why wouldn't I shop at Marshall's? If I'm going to get a good deal, that's where I'm going to shop. You know, I learned certain things. And when I think about the magnitude of where I brought myself to, I'm not in any way tooting my own horn. I'm just saying I did it by having to do it. Necessity was the mother of invention. What was it like leaving Arco? You were in a job. You said you were doing really well. You're making a lot of money, presumably in a spot that your parents hadn't achieved. You realized you weren't really doing what your heart and your soul were driving you toward, and you're going to do something completely different. That's a hard transition. How did you end up making the decision to do that? You know, it was a really hard transition, but what made it easier was just how miserable I was. 
I worked at Arco for 10 years and it was a great company. I learned a lot of things I brought with me to my own business. I have nothing against Arco. What I couldn't stand was the notion that I was constrained in many ways. I like to think outside the box and I was very energetic, which I still am. And I like to get things done. I like to check things off. I like to move on. When you're working in a corporate setting, sometimes the tall nail gets hammered down. I felt as if I was being mediocre because if I did more, it often wasn't appreciated. So the decision to leave to fulfill my dream wasn't hard. It was the financial decision. Fortunately for me, Arco was having a downsizing at the time and they were offering a separation package. And I thought if I could get this separation package, I'd have enough to live on for about a year. And that would really help me. I did get a separation package. It didn't quite last a year. So suddenly I was taking a second out on my home and how am I going to stay afloat? At the two-year mark, things started to turn around. You were consulting at that point. You were doing your coaching. Exactly. It became clear to me that the psychotherapy was never going to be a moneymaker. I was probably getting $100 an hour, maybe $150 an hour. I don't quite remember. And then you had to apply for insurance to pay for it. And there was all this paperwork on top of the fact that I still didn't feel like I was using all my skills. So when I put all of that together... At the two-year mark, things turned around. And because I was working primarily with big corporations, I never really coached individuals who came to me. I coached individuals who were referred by their corporation. My model of, I'm going to go where the deep pockets are, paid off. It was a conscious choice, I have to tell you. What kind of coaching were you doing? I was doing executive coaching. So I was working with predominantly C-suite men. And you have to remember back in the 1980s and the 1990s, people were sent to coaching because there was something wrong with them. Now everybody wants a coach. But back then, I was seeing the people that were too painful to keep and too valuable to lose. Mostly was working on things like communication, how to build a team, emotional intelligence, the things that were getting in their way of building morale and teamwork and seeing productivity through their human resources. And you were building your business, learning about money. Tell us more about what it was like as you were scaling the business. How did you set goals for yourself? Were you setting goals for yourself along the way? I'm embarrassed to say that I wasn't. The goal that I had was to be the best coaching firm in the country. And I named it Corporate Coaching International after reading that Tom Watson from IBM called International Business Machine International, even when he had no international business, because that was his goal to get international business. I knew I wanted to be the best in the country. And I named the firm Corporate Coaching International with an eye on, eventually, maybe I will go national. But you have to remember that I came from a background where nothing was expected of me. I have a male cousin who, about five or six years ago, he said, well, so we're all impressed with what you did. None of us expected you to come to much. He just came out and he said it. And I think it was because I was always a quiet little girl. So I know about writing about nice girls. I was a nice girl. And in some ways, I can still be a nice girl. When I talk about a nice girl, it's that woman who acts like the little girl, everybody expects her to be nice. So I often say I'm a recovering nice girl. I'm not sure I had these big goals. But I knew I had quality goals. 
And I knew that I could use my creativity to achieve those. My vision for my company was to provide compassionate, courageous, conscientious coaching in a way that creates significant and enduring change in the people that I'm privileged to serve. That was my vision. And I stuck to that vision. While I stuck to it, I started getting referrals from everywhere. It was almost like I didn't have to set goals because it was coming at me from everywhere. I had more business than I could handle. But remember, it was because there weren't many coaching firms back then. I was one of the first to start a coaching firm. And now everybody calls themselves a coach. But you have to picture when the market was wide open, it was much easier to attract clients. My biggest challenge, talk about scaling, was how am I going to do this? And it was another pivotal moment sitting in a client's office. And I was coaching her, thinking to myself, boy, when I got back, I've got so much paperwork to do and I got to return these calls. And I, got... I said to myself, Lois, this is no way to do coaching. You need to be fully present. And so it was at that moment I said, I need to hire someone who's really going to be my right hand. And again, it's that you pay in advance for capacity. I finally had this cadre of coaches. We were all doing fairly well, but I had the overhead because they were all subcontractors. And that was my model because I didn't want to have to pay all the things that go along with having employees that I may or may not use fully every single day or every single week. I hired this woman from Claremont College. She was just getting her PhD and she kind of reminded me of me when I was a little younger. She had energy and creativity and that really catapulted me to the next level because she was in the office being the client relations contact. She was handling all the paperwork and the phone calls and all that stuff. And I was able to go out and eventually do mostly marketing. I still did some coaching all along, but I was doing a lot of marketing and bringing people into the firm. You're working predominantly, at least in the beginning, with C-suite men. Tell us the story about becoming the author to the Nice Girls series. Why are you then the author to this series that's targeting women? When I started my coaching business, companies were investing in men. They weren't primarily investing in women. So I was seeing a lot of men. I did get a referral of a woman who was a vice president in a manufacturing company in Herndon, Virginia, and I live in Los Angeles. The reason she was sent to me for coaching is because she was a little bit on the aggressive side of assertive. We know what we call those women. Worked with her for a few months, and then I went to her office. She said, before we get started, I want to tell you that I was invited to sit on the executive committee of my company. And I went to give her a high five, and she stopped me. And I said, what? And she said, I'm not going to do it. I said, this better be good. And she said, I've been to those meetings. They're a waste of time. And what popped out of my mouth was, honey, you got to quit being a girl. And I said, they're called meetings. They're not called workings. You go to meetings to be seen, to see, to market your brand. There's all kinds of reasons you go to meetings that do not mean you have to be 100% productive. But again, as that nice girl that was born into a German family who was taught, you have to keep your nose clean, your ear to the ground, you need to not make any waves, and you need to just be productive, productive, productive. She took that to heart. So on the way back from her office to Los Angeles, I outlined all of what became nice girls don't get the corner office because what clicked in my mind at that moment was like many women, this client was only following these old rules. 
the psychologist part of me knew those old rules follow you around. Freud called them the repetition compulsion. I repeat over and over old behaviors that have worked for me because I'm afraid to try new behaviors. When I applied that to women, I could see how socialization had caused women to sabotage themselves. The reason why it was important for me to write it was because I wanted to reach all the women who would never have a coach. And that was still the part of me who said, it's not so much the money, it's the making a difference. I had written another book before that that did nothing. It went nowhere. And I thought, I have to write this book because this book women are going to need to have so that they could be successful. As luck would have it, it took off and it became popular. Will you tell us the story behind Nice Girls Don't Get Rich? After Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office was on a couple of bestseller lists, the publisher came back to me and said, Lois, we need another Nice Girls book. And I thought, no, I shot my wad on this one. (laughs) I said everything I had to say. And she said, but this time we want it to be about money. And I said, but I'm not a money manager. That's not my thing. I'm not a financial planner. She said, we don't want any of that. We want the psychological ways in which women sabotage their bank accounts. She said, you've talked about how they sabotage themselves in the workplace. Well, how about how they sabotage themselves with money? And then I started thinking about it. And I thought, yeah, we do that too. There's a reason why women don't have more wealth. I wrote Nice Girls Don't Get Rich at the publisher's request. And I talked about all the things I've seen women do with money. And I actually did more research for that one, talking to financial planners and a number of other people about mistakes they saw women making also. And so I put that all together at Nice Girls Don't Get Rich. The subtitle is 75 Avoidable Mistakes Women Make With Money. And there's such simple things. 25 years ago, I was working with a group of junior high school students. And I said, I'm going to open up a Fidelity account for each one of you. And at the time, there were 25 of them. And I put $100 into an account for each one of them. And I said, now it's going to be your responsibility to manage this money. Now, do you know, 25 years later, only one of those 25 girls came back and claimed her money. Just this past weekend, I was trying to track down the other 24 girls because the money was in a money market account. $100 over 25 years only made $3 each. I did track some of them down. I said, listen, my recommendation to you is not to just take this money out and close the account, but rather to put money in for retirement and start investing it. Don't just save it. It was interesting in reconnecting with these girls to see, even though they're relatively young women, they still don't have this sense of investing and how they're going to protect themselves in the future. Can you give us a thought as to why? These girls were all part of, it was called the MOST program, Motivating Our Students Through Experience. And it was something that I started when I was at ARCO. And what we did was we paired professional women with inner city school girls. All of these girls came from families that were really lower income, that I'm sure did not talk to them about investing in the least. Many of them, even though they graduated from high school, which was the whole purpose of the program, they didn't always go on to learn about money. They got educations. A number of them became teachers, I could see as I was doing my research. One became a hairdresser. It wasn't enough for me to just open an account for them and to talk to them on one day about money, in other words. Tell us about the one student who did come track you down. 
for the money. How did that conversation go? It was interesting. She tracked me down, and this was probably at least 10 or 15 years ago. And she said, You would open up an account for me at one time. I don't know if I still can have access to that account. I said, Oh, absolutely, you can have access. I'm the trustee for it, so I need to sign something, but you need to fill out the paperwork and send it to me. And she said, What I want to do is I want to close that account. Now, now working for a company where I can get, I think it was a 401k or something like that. And I wanted to be able to put it into that and make that grow and have it all at the same place. And I said, Amen, you got it. She had turned out to be an attorney. Ah, the influence. And it is amazing. And it does start young. But I talk about this in Nice Girls Don't Get Rich. Even when you get the right messages about money, you get mixed messages about money. I tell the story in the book about the female physician who her husband was a stay-at-home dad and he managed their money. And her financial planner one day went to her and said, you know, I need to tell you, your husband's not doing a great job of managing that money. In fact, he's losing some of your money. And her reply was, well, he already feels badly enough that I'm the breadwinner. Let's not make an issue of it. And I thought to myself, what man when he knew his wife was losing money, would say, you know, she feels badly enough that I'm the breadwinner. I mean, it sounds ridiculous even when you say it, right? So even if you get the right messages at best, women get mixed messages about wealth and whether they should be wealthy. That should word. It's always problematic. I remember right after I wrote Nice Girls Don't Get Rich, it was something I was just paying attention to. And I went to one of these craft fairs and this woman had all these people around her booth. When they all left, I said, wow, people love your product. You're really going to get rich. She said, oh, I don't want to be rich. I just want to be comfortable. And that's what I hear most often from women. And I always tell them, I've been rich and I've been comfortable. And believe me, I like rich better. And you can be both. Exactly. Lois, what's one piece of money wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't covered yet? Benjamin Franklin's maxim about compound interest will turn all your lead into gold. Because I've certainly found that after I started my business and I started taking investment seriously, and again, it was something I had to figure out. I was saving and I knew enough to be in mutual funds and things like that because I'd gone to some workshops and somebody got me in some mutual funds. But then one day, a friend said to me, you know, you really need a money manager. She said, do you have enough money that you need a money manager? And I didn't think I had that much money. At the time, maybe it was $500,000 or something like that. It was then that I started to understand the value of compound interest. My money was growing exponentially the more I invested. Obviously, seeing it grow made me want to invest more. Using my father's maxim, you know, I was never a spendthrift. I remember once calling my financial planner and saying, I want to buy one of those barbecues that are built in and they cost about $3,000. Do you think I can afford this? She said, Lois, you can afford the $3,000 barbecue. Growing up poorer keeps me in that place of being aware of the value of money. But then having acquired some wealth, and I define rich as having all the money you need to live your life the way you want, free from concerns about money. For me, that might be several million dollars. For somebody else, it could be $500,000. It could be $150,000. After my father died, my mother retired. I think in her retirement account, she had about $150,000. 
That wasn't a lot of money, but she knew how to stretch that money. Her feeling is she was living a rich life. She was doing exactly what she wanted to do in her retirement. I don't worry so much about the number, but I do think you need to have a mental number in your head to say, when will I be able to stop worrying about money? Because it's no way to live your life. Your comments had me thinking about the number of billionaires that there are. The New York Times recently did a piece on that. Most of the self-made billionaires are men. That's right. If women are billionaires, they've inherited it typically. Yeah. Or maybe there's a divorce or... Like Mackenzie Scott. Based on the research that you did when you were writing Nice Girls Don't Get Rich and based on the experience you've had being a person who has achieved her definition of rich, what do you think it'll take for more women to be self-made billionaires? Well, self-made billionaires. Hey, I'd be happy if more women became self-made millionaires. If Madam C.J. Walker, the Black entrepreneur who back in the 1920s or 30s built a business and became the first Black woman millionaire, certainly we can do it in this day and age. I think what it's really going to take is for women to have more confidence to strike out on their own and to start their own businesses, to see that being in control of your life financially and professionally and personally can bring you wealth in all kinds of ways, including financially. We can no longer see a man as a financial plan. And I think a lot of times women do see men as a financial plan. And even in this day and age, young women in their 30s and their 40s, they married well. Even my own niece, who's 13 years old, and we talk about these things. She said, you know, but my grandmother always tells me to not consider what I want to do for my life and my education, to just make sure I marry somebody who's going to be wealthy. This is a 13-year-old, and she's still getting this message from a grandmother who's probably about my age. Women need to start striking out on their own. They need to stop being those nice girls who listen to those messages. They need to speak up and stand out for all the right reasons. It's all the things I talk about in my books. I see women doing those things and I get unsolicited letters from women. I got one just the week before last. And it was this woman who said, I gave your book to my sister. My sister read the book. She went to work. She negotiated for a raise and a corner office, and she got it. And I thought, kudos to her. I mean, I may write this, but you've got to get out of your comfort zone and do it. I think that's part of it, is getting out of the comfort zone. It's not an easy question. I don't see the billionaire part coming anytime soon, unfortunately, because you know the numbers better than I do in terms of what's the average American have in savings today? It's some paltry sum. Very small, yes. And that was before COVID. After COVID, I can give a pass maybe. But that was before COVID. We really need to get women, even in the million-dollar range, we'd be ahead of the game. I like it. We'll get there. Not that it's a competition. To be a billionaire, you have to give a lot away, don't you? It's like the article that Anne-Marie Slaughter wrote, Can Women Really Have It All? She wrote it for The Atlantic. And essentially what she said, women can have it all. They just can't have it all at the same time. To get to billionaire, you give up a lot. And I'll tell this story, and I won't use the person's name, but when all the Nice Girls books were kind of at their height, I had a woman who helped me do publicity. And I pointed to another famous author and I said, what do I have to do to get to where she is? And she looked at me and she said, you don't want to be where she is, Lois. 
And I said, why? And she said, she gave up her life to get there. She has no life. She said, I worked with her for a while. All she does is focus on how is she going to make the next million? And I thought, that's true. That's not how I want to live my life. So there's so much about values that go into money as well. Because remember what I said, rich is being able to live your life the way you want, free from concerns about money. It doesn't mean I have to have a billion dollars. It just means I need enough that I'm not worried. What's your next money conversation going to be? And who's it going to be with? Oh, yeah. I'm having it with my partner lately. (laughs) And it's about where we might move next. The houses in my neighborhood, as in everybody's neighborhood, have been going for exorbitant amounts of money. In 10 years, this house has tripled in price. And because I'm my father's daughter, I've been saying, we need to sell this house and we need to get the money. And she would say to me, if we get the money, where are we going to go? And I said, well, that's the whole point. We're going to start looking at places where that amount of money would go a long way and that we would enjoy our lives. We probably wouldn't even have to have a mortgage, live someplace that's cooler than Los Angeles. So that's the next money conversation. It's kind of an ongoing money conversation, but I got to get serious about it since I'm the one that focuses on this stuff. Sounds like a really good conversation to have. And Lois, we really appreciate all your sharing with us, your wisdom for all that you've done from writing these nice girls books to the coaching and speaking. You are an inspiration. Thanks for sharing some of that with us today on Money Tales. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, Share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.